Welcome to another episode of Dare to be Human. On this episode, we have four of us sharing stories inspired by daring to be human in the workplace. This is an episode brought to you by a Facebook comment by Mike Ganino, a listener, a friend of the pod, as they say, who wanted to hear more stories inspired by daring to be human at work. So you have me, you, Kat, and Michael, Mm -hmm. each of us sharing a story inspired by that prompt. Daring to be human network. Michael shares a great story about opening up this very theater where we are working now. I share a story about sharing emotion or trying to at work. You, Alex, share a story about about an interview, about daring to be human in the weird situation that is the interview process. And Kat shares about learning to manage and managing and the potential backfires of telling someone that they're brilliant. Yes, all with... So many straw jokes, enough to kill and choke and squash a camel dozens of times over. <laughs> You'll see what we mean very soon. Very soon. <laughs> Don't forget to continue the conversation with us. You can leave us a voicemail message at 518-212-7886. Comment on our Facebook page. You can also email us at hello at dare to be human podcast. Dot com. Share the episodes. Make sure you're subscribed so you're getting each one new in your feed when we release them. So, we hope you enjoy the show. We'll see you on the other side. So, we're kind of already talking about work. That's our topic for today, right? Alex? Yeah, we had we had a, a listener who sort of was curious about exploring daring to be human in the workplace. So, rather than sort of coming in each of us like prescriptive with opinions we we sort of wanted to approach it the way we've been approaching the show as of late and to sort of start with stories and to uh, explore from there so each of us has a story about daring to be human in the work place and uh and uh by random assignment no uh by careful thought before, <laughs> uh uh michael burns was the uh, wants to, is going to start wants to is going yes. to start yeah, i do wants, i want de- to desperately wants to yeah He's, you should see him bouncing up and down uh, like a puppy in a pet store. Uh, <laughs> he came in this morning. He was like whistling. He was making up songs like, I can't wait to randomly go first. This is a big, <laughs> very a big day. It's a big day randomly go so, first. So, uh, yeah, Michael, you have a Dare to be Human inspired by Daring to be Human at work. Yeah, at work. Well, here's the thing. The very building we're sitting in um, was renovated a few years back when we purchased it. And I learned a really important thing. Thankfully, I'm really glad I did. Um, there's different kinds of human performance, of course, and I was cast in the role with the construction workers who were gutting and then rebuilding this place from the inside out. I was the owner, and that had a capital O that I could hear down the block, and it was like almost like being a cop like you walk up and there's a subtle shift in like the way people are sitting or standing and what they're doing and they don't really look at you and i thought this is not going to do because i need to first of all i'm a geek i love construction and and tools and making things and i intended to be hands-on involved and i was the owner and this was really bad so i figured out pretty quick that what these guys from different trades did with each other. I mean, it's like, hey, uh, 
I don't. I really don't mean to tell you your job, um, but you're standing in a puddle, and that 220 line is live. And maybe, like, I don't. You know what you're doing. I'm not saying you don't really, but uh, you could die <laughs> now, right? There's this whole thing about I respect you. I am not above you in any way, shape, or form. Your knowledge is big, and mine is little. So I started to uh, change my performance to like sort of what was real, my real inner gee whiz geek loving every minute of this performance. Like, wow, I never knew how you guys did that. That's awesome. And what that led to was very quickly, I'd walk in and one or two guys would say, Mike, we got a problem because they were sharing the process with me. Mm. And I was able to actually assess what was going on and make decisions and kind of manage but it was because i was not the owner anymore i was mike and that's my story and i'm sticking with it so that how awesome it i i if i'm getting it right it sounds like um one of the things you were doing was authentically lowering your status so that you could in fact lead in fact, absolutely. And the, the cool thing about it, I think, was that I wasn't lowering my status in any way that was uncomfortable because the status that was accorded to me, I wasn't comfortable with. I was actually going where I was more innately comfortable, which is like, I'm one of the guys. I want to be picking up a hammer, right? And, and it was a ritual game. It's like bowing in Asia, right? Like, I got to bow a little bit lower than you did. What what was happening when you were first showing up as the boss? Oh, uh, yeah, Mike's here. <laughs> you know, which was the same thing as like Popo on the block, right? It, it was really... Um, I don't it, know what that means. It, it, like like uh, <laughs> a drug dealer oh. uh, might have a lookout that would, you know, uh, say 5-0 uh, or Popo uh, uh, or whatever yeah. to warn people, like, stop what you're really right. doing. We gotta change, mm-hmm. you gotta change your status. You gotta yeah. get out of that relaxed, whatever thing. Yeah. Your natural right. look into the, the authority is here look. Yeah. yeah. And, I will say know, it was a good choice for you to stop wearing, like, the full white suit with the little, like, <laughs> when, with the, t- the white top hat. And when, like, when I switched to the tuxedo, everything went much yeah. more Yeah. Yeah. It really yeah. did. Yeah. yeah. It was good. Uh, it's purple. It's talks. a little bit more mm-hmm. relatable. It's playful. I like to think of it as playful. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a Yahtzee set with me. <laughs> shaking those die, walking up in his yeah, suit. Yeah, baby. Here comes Here Mike. Comes That's right. Mike. Here's Mike. God, this is a weird one. <laughs> no, it really was. You know, it was like that. It was like playing with these guys mm-hmm. after a while. But it was it was a much more playful relationship. Yeah. To the point where one day I walked in and one of the tradesmen had made a huge mistake. And I was honestly curious at seeing this, what looked to me like a pretty disastrous choice. And I said, hey, what's... And he interrupted the question. He said, Mike, I fucked up. I fucked up. It was stupid. I fucked up. And I was thinking to myself, like, that never would have happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There would have been a long-winded rationale why this was the best way to go about something. Mm-hmm. And instead, he was just owning it, and and we talked about fixing it, and there was no blame or shame on any side, which is way cheaper. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I love. There's something I think I love about you saying um, really respecting their knowledge, mm-hmm. and I feel like that I don't know opening up to like I really do trust your expertise, and 
I feel like goes toward letting those mistakes be open as well of like, I trust you. And that way I'm not like of having that out in the open that if you make a mistake, I'm not going to, I know, you know what you're doing. And if you make a mistake, I know that you probably like it was, it was an accident or something like, I know that it was, it wasn't yeah. like this, that you were bumbled into it or something. Cause you don't know what you're doing. No, it's so important. It really is because I think that what these guys have to deal with much of their working life is a buffoon who's got a really high opinion of their own mind and no knowledge of the trades or the process that they're actually engaging in, right? So they're constantly having to like justify nonsense, like justify doing it the right way to somebody who doesn't understand. Right. So it was uh, collegial, I guess, right? Something in there about your authentic humility. So you weren't just lowering your status as a ploy. No. But you were embracing your authentic humility and curiosity about what what they were doing. And what I know about you is you also had a certain amount of experience and expertise that was probably more than a number of owners of buildings. So it was an interesting polarity or balance that you knew enough to know what you didn't know. Mm-hmm. I did. And I told them by the, you know, by the end of this first, the, the building renovation took about six months overall, but the summer was like the hot time when the big changes happened. And I told them by the end of the summer, I felt like I'd gotten a year or two of college from them. And they knew I meant it. And I did. And they also knew that I did have some innate knowledge that they would not have respected otherwise these guys. There was another guy who was a carpenter who was like, these, these guys all work for different contractors, right? But he was pretty much the straw boss. And the reason was the same thing. I don't know very, what that is. Uh, straw boss <laughs> is like the guy appointed by <laughs> the boss to keep things moving. And Why is it called a straw boss? He's made of straw. I was going to say, I immediately <laughs> like imagined a, a scarecrow man. just yep, standing yeah. there being like, hey, yeah, you go boss. over there. Well, that's the I'll image. Go that Actually, way. Go that way. Go that way. You kind of need to go in the middle, but I only have two arms. So that's right. That's the image. He's not the boss. He's just put there by the boss so that you feel like there is a boss. Like a scarecrow is put there by farmers so that crows have some place to perch. <laughs> <laughs> so who are the crows in this metaphor? Oh God! No, wow, never. Wow, you're no. pushing that weight. That's so deep. The owner. Here's the deal. Yeah, <clears throat> the owner oh, is the crow. Yeah, the owner. And who's the vulture? Oh, my God. <laughs> no, sorry. No, but this guy. <laughs> And the thing I do is just keep blindly trying to finish the thing I was talking about with the carpenter, even though it's long since left the station. We're sharing the same mic. I hear you. <laughs> Please anyway, there was this carpenter that everybody really respected, and he told people what to do because he could do it in a way that they understood and that, that he wasn't trying to be above them in any way. There. So yeah. and reflecting that sort of that same relationship that you were trying to establish with them? Would you say like he was a master at it? Yeah, he was an absolute master and he was totally like there was no put on with him whatsoever. He was incredibly plain spoken and he had the ability to very nicely uh, question some monumentally stupid thing that was about to happen in a way that made people stop and say, oh, yeah, maybe we shouldn't do that. <laughs> you know, not that these guys were dumb. Please don't get that impression. I kind of used a voice twice that, you know, mm -hmm. these were not dumb. These were incredibly smart guys. Right. What do you think would 
have happened if you actually hadn't had any technical knowledge? I think it would have been a problem. You know, you hear horror stories, you read things about, oh, these contractors ripped me off. No, they did not rip you off. What they did was they went with a given approach. There was bad communication, and they went about it in the way that was, uh, to them, the most elegant, convenient way of doing it, and they don't care about your money. They're just getting a job done because when they finish this one, there's another one, and that's what they do. They're not, they're not even, these are the rank-and-file workers. They're not even representing their own boss, boss's interests, right? So if you don't have the technical knowledge, um, they're, they're going to do stuff that costs money because it seems like the best idea at the time. If you do have some and some humility to go with it, you can have a conversation about would it really be, am I being penny wise and pound foolish to suggest that maybe we think about this or is this really a good idea? And it becomes a co-created process where they have a stake as well as the owner having a stake because people love to be part of a project. People love to create together. People do not love to just be told things. Yeah. Right. So what, what advice would you give to someone who doesn't have that kind of technical knowledge if they're going into a situation and are put into the same role that you were put into um, so mm. that they can have a similar experience? You're seriously screwed. Just oh no, no, no. Uh, give different advice. You are such a pigeon <laughs> no, in that. Situation. Because I mean, I mean, not no, a lot I of will. people buy buildings and turn them into no. improv theaters. People aren't that stupid, but uh, I, people I, have construction projects. Sure, and I would say that an honest acknowledgement of your lack of knowledge and the expertise of the person you're talking to, and a real curiosity, and then asking a question and accepting the answer is just the way to go. And there is also the Google. You can gain technical <laughs> knowledge now. You, you know, you can hear that from the guy working on your roof. And then you can go and say, oh, great Google, is this making sense? And you can find out. Uh, you really can get a gigantic amount of knowledge very quickly. It's been vetted by other people. They've done all the hard work. So that will allow you to confirm or not what you're hearing. I I, I wonder if this makes sense to you. Something that I heard in there was the idea of this idea of people wanting to be part of something and co-creating. Even if I don't have technical knowledge, I can share my vision, my mm -hmm, intention, mm -hmm. or my goals. I say, you know, here's here's what I want to be creating. Here's what, what I want this theater to be, mm -hmm. how I want it to act, or... You know, money is more important to me than longevity, or I need this building to stand for 30 years, even if it's not going to be the most expedient way to do it right now, I'm willing to spend more money. <clears throat> feels like even if I don't know how to get there, I can share the what. Um, and if I'm sharing that with with folks in a yeah in, in a humble way, that might help. What, what do you think about that? I think that's also... Yeah, I guess what, as you say it, I think what I was, was doing was sharing the vision of this theater. This was, this was not a typical project. We weren't making, um, we weren't making an auto parts store, right? Or, or, you know, a, a big box retailer vanilla project. They're, this was kind of cool. So when they said, hey, that's kind of weird, um, like the electrical downstairs is unusual. And the electrician and I got to be good friends because, I was discovering with him the best way to wire it 
for the dimmers that I had in mind and so forth. And he'd never done it before. So um, he had to get this understanding of what this strange man was talking about, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then we problem solved together. And I'd say, what about this? And he'd say, well, yeah, sure. If you want to burn it down, that'd be a good way to go. <laughs> you know? Which is also good knowledge to have for the future. That's you right. never yeah. know. Really, that's where so right? much learning came in. Mm -hmm. We're going to edit this yeah. part out. <laughs> <laughs> right, <yes. laughs> Redacted. Yeah. Awesome. So, from the uh, sort of the establishment of of relationships to, I think maybe uh, sort of what to do and how to express uh, emotion, I think is what we're sort of looking to explore in our next story from mm. from Olivia. Yes. So. My story comes from working in a rather unconventional work setting. Um, I used to be a dog walker, and part of my uh, job was a, was a doggy uh, playgroup where I would uh, take my, my little Honda Civic and pick up maybe uh, four or five dogs and <laughs> bring them to a dog park and uh, have them released and play and wrangle them back and then bring them back to their respective houses. Um, this was my full-time job. So I was doing this during the day and I was at the park at a very specific time every day. So, uh, so I was there with the regulars, you know, I was part of this, this sort of crew of, uh, retired between 40 and 50 year old men with their, with their dogs and the odd, like, uh, person who would pop in and just happened to, to be there every once in a while. Um, so, so there we sort of established this, uh, relationship together, but I still always felt, you know, uh, other than the fact that I was like a young, uh, single woman and it was, you know, we had a lot of very, they were all wonderful. I, I guess I will preface or say that everyone there was so amazing and so like welcoming and wonderful. And I was always very excited to go there. I was also there as, as work. So it was a little bit different. You know, I showed up and I had, I had the uniform. I had the, the t-shirt and the, and the, and the bag with treats and dog bags or, or doggy bags and the, and the hook of keys and like the, all the special leashes or whatever. So there, so there was this sort of, this sort of difference. I was like, I'm here. I'm at work. So, so there was always this differentiation of, you know, they would be kind of talking about their lives and, and whatnot. And I would kind of, I would be there, but it wasn't like, I'm just going to hang out. I'm just one of the dog park people. Like it was, it was, no, it's like, I am the dog walker. I am here with these very good boys and I am here to like have them play and to collect them and keep track of everything. Um, and that sort of, you know, was, was the relationship. There was, there was one day when, uh, when a, when a woman came into, to the park, she was, she was a, a semi-regular. So we sort of knew her, but not really. And she was being, uh, very bothered by one of, one of my younger dogs who was still learning not to jump. So we were all, you know, everyone, it was very sort of like a, it takes a village to, to raise a dog and raise a puppy. So everyone kind of knew, like everyone knows the stuff that everyone's dog is working on. There's sort of this, once you have the relationship with the person, there's this unspoken thing of like you learn how they're teaching them to, you know, get down or whatever. So, so everyone is sort of like communally helping, helping them get there. Um, so this puppy was still, you know, very struggling. So, so he was kind of, you know, jumping and I was making sure to be on him when he, when he wasn't. Um, and on this particular day, this woman was not, was very, uh, not into that in, in the, in the couple of times that he did it. So, she walked in, he jumped on her once and I, you know, I apologized, explained it, the whole thing, got him away. He went up to approach her again and she's like, grabs her dog and she's like, I don't want to have to deal with this. We're leaving. And she like grabs a dog and leaves and gets in the car and, and goes away. And I'm, and I'm kind of standing there. I was like, okay, that makes sense. 
that is uh, her prerogative. She deserves to have the experience at the dog park that she wants. And then uh, another person comes in who's a regular, and they're like, hey, Olivia, how's it going? And I'm like, <laughs> this person just they came into the dog, and he was trying to, he's trying so hard, and everyone understands, and I'm trying to be here. And I am just crying and crying and crying. And, then, and, the, and the woman who came in, she's like, you don't pay her any mind. She is a and she is like, you don't have to listen to her. And, blah, blah, blah. and she, I know for a fact she's like a miserable boat. So like, that was a side thing because she was like, doing her own sort of going off. But, but it was this, uh, yeah. So, so, so that ended up happening and I was just like, you know, and then, and then there was sort of, you know, that was that sort of immediate thing. And then the other, you know, re- retired, whatever guys in, the, in their own way sort of like supporting me, like supporting me by, by coming over and being like, yeah, so uh, you know, the they fixed the roof on the thing over there, like trying to <laughs> trying to ease it over. Um, so 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 that's really that's really it. But that was like the moment of of finally breaking, having this tiny little thing uh, have a have a strong effect. So, what do you make about what do you? Why did you choose that story? Um, I think I, I chose it because I remembered that moment feeling so different. And then also, as I was thinking about stories for for this, it wasn't you know these this wasn't my they weren't my coworkers they weren't other people who were employed with me it was a public place where you know people can have different sorts of relationships but I but I still felt that like that was that was still a breach of something because I was there as dog walker and I wasn't there as human person dog owner it was different like uh, there was something. Uh, that felt that felt different about that, and which was strange because these are people that I was seeing every day. We actually did have really, I I knew so much about about everybody, um, you know, by the by the end of everything. So it was like, why did that feel so strange? Why in that moment did that feel so strange to be super? Because it's, I mean, having pets and dogs, it's it's super emotional. There's like crazy emotional stuff that happens at the dog park when because it's 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 basically fam, it's it's big families interacting with each other and. Uh, so, so it happened a lot, but just having it, not, but not for me. Not for me. It's not supposed to be that. Was there, uh, was there an expectation from the people that like hired you that like there was a certain amount of like professionalism? Was it like an external force, or was it all like your own? Like I am dog walker. I think it was sort of my own dog walker. It was, mm-hmm. it was because the, it was the, I loved working for, for these people. It was a, it was a, somebody, it was a husband and wife who started a business and they're like super, super chill, very, uh, very like warm and loving, very hippy dippy. They like, uh, in, in the, in the best possible way. So, so if anything, I was being more mm. uptight and, and rigid probably than, than they would, uh, you know, have prescribed for their walkers. So you said uh, earlier this is the huh. thing that finally sort of like broke the barrier. So was there tension before that moment of like mm. Livia inside that dog park, like actually being there? I feel like, uh, I mean, that without going too much into it because it's a whole other story, that was during a kind of a crazy part of my life. So I think it was mm-hmm. sort of the breaking point in terms of what was going on in my See, there's a thing. What was going on in my like personal life was sort of this was the little thing that wouldn't have been a big thing on a big day, but because of things outside of the park when it happened there, then that was the thing that pushed it. Um, so there wasn't like this woman keeps coming in and like one of these times something's going to happen when she's here. It was less that and more and more just the, the, the final little like you, you know, 
uh, you're like, my day is fine. My day is fine. My day is fine. And you go and you're like, oh, I didn't bring my my lunch. Cool. It and was, then it's the worst thing ever. <laughs> it was the yeah. straw that broke the camel's back. Indeed. And now we have a straw metaphor. Yes. A theme. <gasps> we, we have do. a straw theme. Shit. Straw theme for every story. Excellent. Yes. Are you ready? Pressure's We're going to have on. a straw theme. Yes. I mean, uh, you know. <laughs> Ooh. Oh. Mm, straw, the, good. <laughs> the, the idea of being emotional yeah. at work at all, mm-hmm. and specifically women being emotional at work because it feels like it's different Mm -hmm. from men being emotional at work Mm -hmm. and even more specifically crying at work is really juicy isn't it yes it is yeah (laughs) i feel like a lot of my uh rotating through as i was thinking of stories it's like let's see am i gonna talk about when i cried at the dog park Am I going to talk about when I like <laughs> hid away in a bathroom stall and cried it there? Am I going to talk about how I went out to my car for a break and cried instead? Or is it like, so, so it's a lot yeah. of that. Um, um, I think there was sort of this. Yeah, I think some of that is, uh, I know for, there's a hesitance to show it because it's like, I, uh, I don't know, as a woman, I am through the world and I am carrying the mantle of woman in the world. And if people have experiences with me, how they interact with me either checks a box in uh, one category for them or the other one. So it's like, if I am here, like wrangling dogs, but I'm like crying and being emotional or one of my dogs is bad, then it's like, see, they can't do like, she's not, is, is what it feels yeah. like. So, so, so I think there's that extra layer to it. And Sometimes it feels to me like there's this catch-22 where on the one hand, you know, if we show up as strong, Mm -hmm. then we're inauthentic or we're uh, harsh Mm -hmm. or we're bitchy or Mm -hmm. we're cold. Um, But if we show up as authentic and emotional, then we're weak Mm -hmm. or um, fragile Mm -hmm. or hysterical, right? All of those things. We have a, our wonderful colleague, Corey Jameson, who is a local consultant and coach. And here says, um, I love when she talks about crying. She says, it's just salt water. Mm-hmm. And she says, the more you cry, the less you have to pee. That's great. Um, That's fabulous. Isn't that great? I want that to be true. Yeah. <laughs> There's something about um, normalizing mm-hmm. tears, which I love. Right. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's, yeah, and it, normalizing or uh, normalizing like any kind of show because I, like I know for for me personally, just Livia as a person, anytime it's an extreme emotion, it goes right to tears. So whether it's mm. anger or any kind of thing, like so, so that goes to tears. So I think there's something to allowing for tears, but then also allowing for authentic emotional response. Like if it mm-hmm. feels that way, so it just happens to be that way more so for and some it, people than others. Well, the default thing I think I, I think men tend to tend to default more to like rage rage type anger than to tears, and women more to tears than right. But that's at least a, stereotypically, that's, that's well, it's a generalization, right? Um, I think if you're a if you've you know uh, uh, got a theater training background, there's this weird spin that's put on it. It's like wow. That's awesome access. That's really good. It's almost admired in a way that uh, the civilian, if you will, culture doesn't admire somebody just going about their business crying and doing what they're doing, and they're just crying mm-hmm. while they're doing it. Um, you know, folks with actor training are just loving that. 
that's just an amazing ability as opposed to disability. So it really depends on how you frame it. I, I feel like I felt completely disabled in acting school. And in, ultimately, I feel like I got kicked out of acting school because I couldn't cry on cue. Because that wasn't something that I had access to. Um, I had plenty of other range, but not tears. Specifically not tears uh, until my daughter was born. And now I'll cry at a commercial, a toothpaste commercial will make me cry. So it's interesting. It's not something that I've had to manage in work environments mostly, but it's also something that I that was a terrible disability as an mm -hmm. actor for me that I felt like I didn't have access to that. It feels like we could talk for six weeks just on that topic. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about emotion in general and where you feel like, and everybody at the table, mm -hmm. like where access to emotion feels like it's a benefit at work and where we feel like we want to create an environment where it's more welcome in the conversation and where we want to advocate for it being more welcome in the conversation and where it feels appropriate in professional settings, whatever that means to manage emotion, maybe even in a different way than you would in other environments mm. or personal environments. Is there a difference with having emotions? I've been trying to like recognize when I have one, name what it actually is. And then Rather than putting a, a judgment on it or being like, these are the ones I can't have, so I need to shoo those away and like uh, do some mental gymnastics to turn it into something else to make it appropriate. Instead, trying, 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 key word underline, figuring out what it is, naming it, and then looking at what is – so I had this reaction. I can't control that. That was the emotion that I felt. I had this reaction. So I have this. What is What is it telling me? Like why did I – why was that the reaction to this thing? Yeah, I guess what is it telling me about what I need? Um and that feels huge at work because you are you are a person here. So if you can, I mean, I mean, I feel like that feels like the thing you would open it up to is this is telling me that I need something. How does that apply here? That's glorious. And just as true at work as it would be anywhere else, right? Yeah. I've been in a lot of different work, many different work cultures. Boy, have I been in a lot of work cultures because you got kicked out of acting school because you couldn't cry. I got kicked out because I drank so much. So when I was younger, I went through a lot of jobs in a lot of different cultures. I don't do the drinking anymore. Uh, but anyway, some cultures, like, this emotion's okay, and you should really pretty much always present it, right? Like, kind of like your flair, you know? Mm -hmm. We're a happy workplace, and that's like cancer to me. There are others where no emotion is really acceptable, and then I worked a long time in human services where maybe just possibly they default to the other extreme, which is mm -hmm. like they spend so much time honoring people's emotions that they could actually maybe just get a little bit of work done in the meantime. And that wouldn't hurt either. There is a balance, I think, of honoring all the emotions that people have. And also it is work. So, yeah, uh, you feel that way. Good. Now let's get this thing done while you feel that way is sort of a value that I've been developing. I guess this sort of really applies to my to be human story ah. I think this sort of mm. is the place that this story sort of walks the, the line on all of my previous employment before this moment was all like a you go in for your interview you sit across from someone and they have like some questions for you and there's some pressure in there to like get the answers right in whatever ways that you can and uh, then you shake their hand and then you walk out of that room and after that, maybe you get noticed that you've gotten that job. And then you go and you show up and you now you do that job. Like I was a camp counselor and I worked in construction 
and I worked at, at Macy's and a couple of different aspects as a salesman. And then uh, my first job outside of that was at this lobbying firm. And I went in and had that sort of typical, you know, I'm going in and I'm <clears throat> answering questions about myself and my certain expertises and about my background and my work and the degree I have and the work that I did there. And all right, thank you very much and shake hands and we'll go. And then the next was there was a follow-up interview. There was a second interview. So in my mind, I was like, okay, round two of this, it's going to be even more intense, harder questions. All right. I'm researching the, the Albany legislature a little bit. I'm going to have some more info under my belt. I'm going to be ready for this. All right. And when I come in, we go into a different office this time. We're not going upstairs. We're going in this little side room and we come in and it's downstairs in this office where there's a, a bunch of nice leather furniture and a big TV and a window facing up at the Capitol of New York, which is a very uh, impressive building with big marble staircases. And they asked me to sit down and everyone in the firm is like sitting in the room. And I sit down and they're like, we want to, we want to meet you because we were thinking about hiring you and we want to, we want to know about you because you're going to work here and we're going to have to like know you. So what's your deal, man? Like, <laughs> not in so many words, but like, was kind of like, what, what are you about? Like, what do you do? What do you like? What are your interests? What do you like? Where do you, where do you live? What's going on? What's, what's Alex Timmis? And I remember it being this weird moment of like, huh. I get to choose, like, now is the moment where I get to start building the Alex Timmis, you know, uh, research analyst in this moment. This is the moment where I get to tell them, like, oh, okay, uh, well, I have this practice space I rent with a couple of guys. We play some music. And one of the parts is like, oh, cool, I play bass. I go, oh, great. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> uh, I like the... Yankees and the Giants and you know a couple people like oh yeah the Giants oh got a Cowboys fan over there okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> um you know talking about improv I do improv oh great what shows oh what do you do oh what's that like sort of this you know interest in who I am and what's going on and uh after I left the room I did get the job I came back and started working for them and one of the things I realized afterward was that this company this lobbying firm was sort of built from uh, uh, Senator Alphonse D'Amato was sort of the, the founder of it. And it built out from him, other people, you know, sort of added on. And this Albany office was really, what it mostly was, was another company that sort of got absorbed, another lobbying firm that was mostly guys that all worked under Pataki and all were friends and liked each other. So they decided to start a lobbying firm together because they liked working with one another. And that was sort of the beginning of that company and what sort of got pulled in. So there was this sort of value around like, we're going to work with you. I want to like you. So <laughs> before we hire you, like we kind of want to meet you and see what you're like and what you're about. But in that same openness, there's that same, uh, what I kept remarking on, there's that same pressure of like, ooh, <laughs> What do I choose now? How much is like, this is sort of my moment of starting to open doors and let things in, let them in on my life. But at the same time, it was also sort of a, a one-way street of like, you're sitting here, tell us about yeah. you, because we're going to decide whether you're cool yeah. enough to join the club here. Yeah. Yeah. 
how did you do? How did you feel about the person you designed yourself to be? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I was trying to be in that moment because earlier on in that sort of trying to find a job, I went to another lobbying firm and was very safe and robotic and protected until they sort of got me talking about something I cared about. And the guy was like, that's the guy that I want to hire. I'm not going to hire you, but like <laughs> I, would hire, I would hire that guy if I had a position for that guy. Uh, so I think in that place, I was trying to be as much open about who I was and what I did and what my interests were as I could because I was aware of that falsity, you know, not ringing well before. So I was sort of like, I, I want this job. I, I think I, and I, there's something about that experience too. It was like, oh, I kind of like, I like, I got to meet them and I was sort of more excited about the job because I got to see the faces that existed in this space that I was going to work with. You know, it was more than just sort of interest. There was also sort of some of the, the guys getting specific, uh, cause it was mostly men. I think there was maybe two women in the room were asking me questions more sort of like, you know, their own follow ups because they're, they know that they're going to work with me too. So they're a little more curious about, you know, Greg and, and Dave say that, oh, he's got this research background or whatever, but they want to ask maybe a more specific question to me. But I felt like I liked it and I felt like it made me more excited about the job because I felt like I had more of a feel of what was going on. And when I came in that first day, if I didn't know anything, at least I knew that, you know, Dave liked the Cowboys and that was something we could talk about. And, you know, Greg plays the bass and, and on and on. And, you know, Bill has, uh, two kids because he mentioned that as you know asked if I was married and had any kids or whatever and that there was this relationship beginning to build before I even you know signed on and was officially there nice. yeah I think I would have been very challenged by the thing you said a few minutes ago it's like yeah. well wait a minute you all want to know about me uh <laughs> now you you've you're sharing some superficial crap here guys but like mm-hmm. you, you, you just put me in the middle of a circle of people and mm-hmm. said look well oh wolves yeah <laughs> right uh like uh, I guess that sounds really threatening to me. Yeah, I guess that was there. there there's that duality to it, right? There's there's a part of it that felt like a a welcoming and felt like a. I guess some of it felt like a victory, like oh, I'm I've made it to this point and I'm meeting mm-hmm. all these people, yeah. so that feels good. But yeah, some of it was like in that moment, I very much remember my mind racing and being like, "All right, Alex, what are the top five things you can share with these people <laughs> right now? Oh God, what can we like? What can we be open about? What can we?" Because I think for the most part in my other jobs, you know, in Macy's, like I had a group of people that I was going to be working with, but it was never the same people. So it was it was more person to person working out what can I share with this person? What do I like in between folding shirts or, you know, selling jewelry or whatever, trying to connect with that person, chipping away and slowly figuring out like, oh, okay, uh, Jason and I have similar musical interests so we mm-hmm. could talk about that or you know what because uh, this was you know with um, Obama Romney at the time like okay we're kind of on different sides of the political spectrum a little bit but in, in a way that we can communicate about that so okay I can talk to to Jason about politics but maybe not in the same way that I can talk to Hannah about mm-hmm. politics because I know that we're not so there's this weird changing of things but instead it was like here's all these people we're like it's all happening in this space, we're all going to have this shared thing rather than like this individual one-off figure out type deal. Mm. Was there a sense that there were right answers and wrong answers or? 
good no, things to share and no, wrong like, things to share? It felt like it was just a general curiosity. Some of it was about personal stuff. Some of it was about like, what are you thinking about? What do you want to do? Like you're, you obviously like wanted this job for a reason. What more do you like, what do you see yourself doing? It was that sort of like, mm-hmm. It sounds like a cool try. They made a really good, but I would have liked a lot of sloppy food. If this was so, just to really test me. Yeah. If I remember correctly, this was a conservative yeah. lobbying yeah. firm, and your politics are not completely aligned. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. Was that something that you felt aware of, or that you could share in that moment, or did you share that in the moment? Did it come up? Yeah, I think. I mean, I it wasn't like a secret, and it wasn't like there weren't those people in the room as well. Like there were other people in that room like that worked for before he was a lobbyist, he represented a, a big trade union in the state. And huh. there were other people that worked in New York that were that were more liberal. And then, you know, for the most part it was New York I guess that's that's probably a falsity to say too. Like a New York Republican. So they weren't like mm-hmm. they weren't I don't know. Old fashioned New York old, Republicans. Yeah, they were old fashioned New York Republicans. Were any uh, of them strawmen? Uh oh, yeah. I did not poke at any of them. There could have been a scarecrow Thank in the you. mix. Ooh. They could have been trying to inflate their numbers. Did they like been. the Wizard of Oz? <laughs> Is a dark horse candidate made of straw? <laughs> it was it certainly wasn't hidden and I think I had pretty open conversations with with people about about that in that workspace but definitely not not as open i feel like most of it was the same sort of conversation that you'd have about sports or something like that like we talk about the legislature like you would talk about you know rex ryan and the jets like i don't know what he's doing what are they thinking like you know like monday morning quarterback type stuff i love that that's yeah like we're just it's easy like it's safe to talk about it make, Until the scandal involves your own office, and then you can't talk about it. Anymore. Right. It makes me think about the idea of culture fit. And, mm-hmm. you know, on some level, it feels benign or even, as you say, kind of welcoming to say, oh, I want to like you as a person, and let's hire someone that's a good fit for our culture. What could make more sense? And at the same time, that's how you get Right. That's how you create cultures that are not diverse and organizations that are insular and where people hire their friends. And even if you do end up recruiting folks who are diverse in a variety of ways, you may not end up being able to keep them. Mm -hmm. Right. This is part of the problem that organizations have, even really large organizations with huge diversity initiatives. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of our largest clients struggle with this. There are some ways in which that process, you know, I wonder if I were sitting in that chair mm-hmm. um, as a, I'm, I'm making things up right now, but right, you know, as a 50-year-old Jewish woman, how it would be different, you know, like, I don't know that I could talk about, but like, of all those things you listed, like, how many, how many boxes would I be able mm-hmm. to check where the people in the room would go like, oh, yeah, I like that, I like that, we have that in common, we have that in common, mm-hmm. um, that had nothing to do with my job qualifications, nothing to do with anything they were asking. And if I didn't have those things in common, would they decide, oh, I don't like her or Mm. I'm not comfortable with her and then I wouldn't get the job. And are we okay? Is that cool? Yeah. I guess to me it wasn't part of the difference was it didn't feel like the other interviews where there was a right answer. It was like the pressure felt like to just to communicate and not like – 
of it, I remember the meeting sort of slowly turning into more a a conversation than an interview. Yeah. Because I think it wouldn't have been so much like does cat like cat doesn't follow football. I feel like it would have been more like there's probably I think there's other people at the firm that are that same way. So it was it would be about like oh you know I don't really follow that or like it would right. be sort of like again like checking that I don't know Mate. a matching sort of. Well, that's the question, Energy, right? right? But if like, if the, if the, if what we're testing, right, or what mm-hmm. we're calibrating is, do we like you? Right. Do you fit yeah. in? Then by definition, potentially, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of spitting out from this particular yeah, yeah. organization. So I'm not in any way impugning this organization, but like, let's just take the premise, yeah. right? If we're having an interview to say like, Hey, we're going to work with you. So we want to like you. Mm-hmm. We want to feel comfortable with you. Mm-hmm. And that becomes what we're looking for, then almost by definition, we're going to continue to be hiring people that are like us and yeah. that we feel comfortable with. Yeah. yeah. Which is, again, by definition, sort of the opposite of increasing diversity mm-hmm. and well, expanding do, our range. I mean, when you say that, what I get curious about is how does an organization then? face that issue like right i mean this is alex is describing they made it a conscious part of their process but i think about a lot of jobs where maybe it was after the hire what's different is this was before a hire where it was like there was there's sort of testing Mm -hmm. do you fit here and you know it wasn't necessarily identified ways that people are diverse as much as can you think the way we think feel the way we feel um laugh the way we laugh kind of cultural questions Right. How do you get around that? Well, I think it's problematic. I mean, I I don't think we're going to solve it here on the podcast because I think it's one of the I think it's a a deep issue that some of the best minds in organizations are are addressing and dealing with right now. And I think it's tough. I think it's really tough because I want an answer. right? (laughs) Well, and I think we have it here, too. Right. How do you attract and retain folks who can expand and support what you don't have already, right? And at the same time, attract and retain people who are aligned with your culture, right? You, you there's there's some place where you have to have alignment, yeah, right? And where do you need alignment around values and intention? Because you can't have folks who aren't aligned around your values and intention, yeah. or you can't have a culture and be aligned. But at the same time, what is important to be aligned around, and what are core values? And where is it okay and beneficial to be more diverse in thought, in style, in strengths, even if it's a little bit more uncomfortable or takes a little bit more time to connect, I think is the, is the challenge. One sentiment that I, that I like or, or a, a, the thing that I like from what they did is like the idea of connecting as people before before you get there like like you said working at Macy's it might take months and months and months and months before you learn one thing about somebody (laughs) so so I love I love the idea of having it be like we're going to be working together and we're people and we're going to acknowledge that right off the bat and be like let's actually connect as human people first and how that how that changes things going into working together no matter who you are beautiful that part of it i I'm sure they're great, and I didn't mean to like. No, I didn't no, want to no. spiral no, into no, criticizing no. them. It's just a- I think I think you raise a, a great point because I think even within that organization, there was probably some degrees of 
with that diversity of, of thought that there was probably some degree of you know tokenism and isolation for those people that are there because they're not I think in some ways part of the problem was they weren't completely aligned with the as much as they were sort of there as part of the diversity they were more um tolerated than celebrated in terms mm. of the the group and as I say that depends on what you talk about celebration because there's a, right. I think there's a value in the firm of having like we have to like having a diverse looking portfolio of all these different people that have all these different backgrounds but I think that's the double-edged sword of that yeah. culture aspect right if we want a group of people that we have this vibe we have this sense we have these values but then it makes it harder to diversify and grow in right. certain areas if that the gravity of that uh, culture is so heavy that anyone that enters that sphere either has to be absorbed into it or else exist as this other sort of planetary object yeah. that is part of the ecosystem <laughs> but is not really right? part of it. Right? The Cowboys fan, for example. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Immediately well, ostracized. I mean, we, we, I think about it with our organization, right? Like we say, we're a, you know, we're this scrappy improvisational startup where everybody has to do everything and, mm -hmm. you know, and we need we need people who are really organized and really structured is really what we need. And, you know, really strong business development, you know, whatever it is we need. If we get someone like that, can we retain them? Mm -hmm. Or are we just going to make them insane and they will quit? <laughs> right? Can, yeah. can we leave enough space and give them enough support that they can affect us? Right? Mm -hmm. And we can integrate that and there's going to be tension there, right? It'll be harder for us than if we just got someone else who would be like, woo, let's improvise and I'll surf that. Mm -hmm. But it will also help us, right. right? Even on that cognitive yeah. diversity. Anyway. Yeah. Cool. So I think you had a story about sort of division and separation in terms of the workplace, right? I, well, I think, I think that, you know, it, it relates in the sense of figuring out what it is that the scene needs and how to show sort of internal conflict or challenge or surfing polarity. Yeah, I think that your story relates to what I was thinking about in terms of the tension that can exist between thinking about what your own just individual authenticity and comfort level and then really thinking about the context that you're in and what the scene the scene needs, as we say, as improvisers. For many years, really, I was working with one of our large Silicon Valley clients to design and facilitate management skills training. And I actually started on that project before I had any full-time people that I was managing myself. Shh, don't tell. <laughs> I knew a lot about managing intellectually. And I knew a lot of individual skills that I practiced with individual people, but not with full-time employees of my own. And then I got full-time employees and time marched on. And then one day I'm in this course that I had designed three or four years ago and I'm facilitating it. And we're having a conversation about uh, situational leadership, which is really about flexing your style and the way you interact with whoever you're managing dependent not just on the individual but on the task to match their needs in essence right so without going into too much detail it really just says you know there's a 
motivational aspect to the person and also a, a, a sort of um, competency-based or knowledge and capability aspect to the person in terms of their where they fall in any given task. And you need to manage differently depending on that. And in this culture where I was facilitating this course, one of the things that had come up a lot and that I'd said a million times was managers tend to undermanage, like we tend to, because it's such an autonomy supportive environment where the value is around not being directive or, or sort of a hierarchical in management structure, but looking as manage, as support, people tend to, in fact, not give people what they need. They just go like, oh, here's the project. Go figure it out. I trust you. You're smart. Go. And how frustrating that can be. We had this long conversation about it. I did all this great facilitation and coaching. And I left the room with this horrible, mortified dread, you know, humiliating sense that I had been completely failing you, oh. <laughs> the people looking at me with these big eyes, with the people that I had been managing, yeah. partly because I was on the road a lot and, you know, we'd been overwhelmed, but just partly because I'd had this sort of high-minded, philosophical, flowery vision of like, you're smart, you're talented, you know, oh, I'll just like be autonomy supportive and say, here's the task, go figure it out. Um, and that that was somehow being respectful and supportive when in fact, I was just like, you know, sending you out into the wilderness with like a loaf of bread and some matches and going like, fly, be free, I, I support you and respect you, and doing you this terrible disservice of not at all giving you what you needed. And I was an idiot because I wasn't at all practicing what I'd been preaching. So I came home and we had like like some conversations. I was like, what if I actually did these things that I'm teaching, like had weekly meetings where we sat down and had conversations once a week about what are you doing? What do you need? Or when I said, here's a project that I need you to fill out, I we had some conversations about what is the result and what do the specs actually look like? And I said, hey, if you get stuck, what if you come talk to me about where you're stuck and where you need help? And I'm going to check in with you a moment to see if I'm right about this. But my experience was in like two weeks everything was transformed and you both seemed happier and the results that I was getting and what I was asking for were like a quantum leap better because I was actually making it possible for you to do what you wanted to do. You can tell me that I was totally wrong, but before I check in with you, just the end of the story in terms of daring to be human, what I realized about my performance was I needed to be more deliberate about the performance choices I was making. There's this polarity or maybe even a paradox when we talk about authentic performance or daring to be human. And sometimes I think when we talk about daring to be human, we can make the mistake of thinking that means just being unconscious about it or being habitual about it. And what I'm coming to realize more and more is, again, what we teach, which that is that doesn't mean that we don't have to be intentional about it or conscious. And it doesn't mean that we can't deliberately grow and shift our performance. Before anything, I want to say, I didn't want to interrupt you when you were talking about when you called yourself an idiot. I wanted to go, boo, no, no, <laughs> well, no. not an idiot. I, I, I mean it in the most, that. you know. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so I was right, right? That was a shift that needed to happen. And was my assessment of what was happening here correct? That feels true to me. That felt really true. I feel like I identify a lot with that sort of coming into it, I think getting 
like I didn't know. I think we were both learning at the same time. Like this is, I'd never been in in a job like this before, or a situation like this before. So if it was like, here's this project, you're smart and talented, figure it out. I'm like, all right, cool. So I'm smart and talented and I will figure it out. And then sitting down to do it and being like, I cannot figure it out. I must not be smart or talented. <laughs> so I'm like, oh boy. And I can't go back because they think that I'm smart and talented. So this mm. is what I've been tasked with. So, so I must be able to do it. I have to be able to do it. And then just it turning into this, this cycle of it. So I think it was, yeah, it, it felt transformational enough just to sit down and be like, so we're, we're on the same page now, right? Like, oh, okay. Like, like, oh, now, now we know, now we both know what to do because yeah. it's like, oh, Oh, I thought you were doing that. Oh, I was doing that thing. Oh, I was doing <laughs> yeah. that thing. And then it sort of, uh, yeah, I, I feel like that, that feels, that, that felt true. It felt like this yeah. sort of. You know that, have you ever seen that model of how your brain thinks about like the size of your body parts, how like your face mm. and your mind yeah. is like way oh, bigger. It's freaky looking. Your hands are like way huger than they should be. I feel like you sort of, stepping into that space of like that weekly check-ins like sort of put things into proper proportions because I feel like because Michael and I had much more face-to-face time and not necessarily even like meeting time but just like we're at the same table and talking about the same stuff more often it just made that aspect of everything I'm doing seem bigger because it's just there's more contact in that way and then having that same contact with you made the different divisions between, you know, what I'm doing that's more involved with my work with Michael, what's more involved with my work with Kat, like, it just sort of put that more into proper perspective. So it wasn't like the weird spindly spider legs <laughs> of the model, but were more, you yeah. know, was, was yeah. more uh, appropriately uh, proportioned just to like two, what's happening in my day-to-day life. robust, like, arms of a scarecrow, just like perfect right, like little straw legs. With straw. Four for four. <laughs> I think, I think there's a really important thing in there about inadvertently sabotaging somebody by uh, you're attempting to be encouraging, but you're really saying what what Livia said. It really jumps out. Like if you come back on this, you're going to look like an idiot. So don't admit, mm. right? And and you can think you're being an incredible manager or or guide or teacher, and what you're really doing is shutting down the possibility of real learning because uh, there's a value attached to. You're cool. You got this. You're smart. And that's that. I, I've seen that over the years a lot with kids. Adults do that to kids all the time. And the kid just shrugs and goes, I'm not going to no, no. And that's how you get all those monosyllabic kind of duck. There's an adult talking to me responses because there's no trust. Mm. Right. I think you're pointing to fixed mindset versus growth mindset, mm. among other things. Right. Which is if I say you're smart and talented so you should be able to do this yeah. versus you're smart and talented. And so we can learn this mm-hmm. together. I trust that we can learn this and right, being successful at this mm-hmm. and getting results on this has nothing to do with your capability, right? You can learn and grow, right? We're not measuring on results. The other thing that you made me remember, Olivia, mm-hmm. about our conversations, maybe that's the most important thing mm-hmm. is that we started having conversations yeah. was... I remember sharing like this experience you're having of mm-hmm. like writing a proposal, for example, of sitting at the blank page and going this like this should be really super easy mm-hmm. and it should take me 15 minutes. And in fact, it's 
hard and it takes three hours often to go like, wait, what did they say? And I have mm-hmm. to look it over here and then I'm looking over here and I have to rewrite mm-hmm. it is my process too. And that, that may just be the process. And so there's nothing wrong. That's just how it goes. And I have that same process was probably something I should have shared. <laughs> Sometimes it's not so easy. Yeah. So just connecting and having the conversations mm-hmm. and feeling like we're in it together yeah. made it more fun for me too, I hope for you, yeah. but just that that was the part of being human too, is weirdly, given that we're improvisers and it's all about collaborating, that we're all sort of siloed, sitting in our own mm-hmm. little spaces, struggling alone instead of mm-hmm. making time to connect yeah. with each other. Yeah, I think there was sort of this, the mindset of like, yeah, when we're siloed, as I'm sort of like, oh man, I'm sure everyone else here and across the world, everyone else who's working is definitely like getting everything done and knows exactly what they're doing and has this process and is just killing it. And I can't (laughs) like, it's what it feels like when really it's like, Oh, I talked to two other people, one other person. And it's like, Oh no, no, that's like, like everyone is doing that. Like it's, it's, it's all little frayed ends of a piece of straw. I'm going to keep, (laughs) I'm going to keep doing this. (laughs) Like, uh, yeah. So just having that simple, that sort of human connection, that moment of like, can we just take a second? Like, this is crazy, right? Like this, like yeah. everything we're doing in this world and work and uh, all these tasks and organizing and having this be this way and, and answering oh this and that. Like, like it's crazy, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, no, it is. Okay, cool. Okay, good. <laughs> so we're like in it together, right? Like, yeah, we're here together for sure. Oh. I feel like part of your story was like going and talking to to Michael and sort of building. I feel like whenever there needs to be like that sort of change of like, oh, I'm not living up to this value I have for myself or this thing I want to have for myself. I feel like what I'm hearing in that is sometimes it's it's really important to like say that plan out loud to a person, like tell one person like, hey, I plan on doing this, like check in with me because my plan tomorrow is to go into work and to, to try this. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, when that when you come back that next day, the person could be like, hey, did, did it go? And you would be like, yeah, <laughs> or you'd be like, yeah, I did, and it wasn't as scary as I thought, and it yeah. was all these, all these other, you know, reasons that I should have done it. That one little tweak, that one little just mention of like this unspoken thing that was happening is such a huge, huge thing, right? And I feel like there's there's something in there about like, was there a fear of like if I if I'm more of a manager in this role with these people, my relationship with them is not going to be the same, or or were there any other things that were keeping you from from approaching the the way you want to approach it now? Yeah, I I I think that definitely was part of it. I'm guessing a lot of managers feel this way, right? That I didn't want to be presumptuous. I didn't want to have distance. I didn't want it to feel like there was some kind of hierarchy of boss and employee mm-hmm. that would be distancing or have you all feel disrespected or... Like there was hierarchy, which, by the way, I'm clear is self-serving and also silly in some ways because, uh, of course, there's a hierarchy and, of course, it exists, Mm. right? You work for me. I pay your paycheck. But but you're talking about… You're talking about managing in terms of the really human managing. I, I, I keep thinking of my contractor friends managed each other. There was not a hierarchy in that situation, but they had to create one in order to get, get information to happen to make things go forward. So that's why it would be, hey, I don't want to tell you your job. I'm just a dumb guy that does metal work. But, well, uh, right? Yeah. 
So there's got to be one. Well, I think it connects back to where we started with Michael, right? That there's a whole bunch of things that get conflated. So to answer your question, I think, yes, I think I had all sorts of voices in my head that were about, I want this to be, you know, completely flat organization. I want everybody to be, you know, to be totally comfortable. I want us all to be on the same page. I want everybody to be totally happy and inspired and invested and self-motivated all the time. I want to be the kind of manager who just supports people. And in fact, on some level, it was inauthentic, right? Because I mean, there's so many different layers to it, right? One layer is it, it was inauthentic because I'm being dishonest. I'm the boss. I get to tell you what to do. I get to hire and fire and I get to pay you. So if I'm not on some level owning that and taking responsibility for it, I'm not being authentic. We both know that. So I have to take responsibility for that and follow through on it. If I'm going to assign you something, I need to provide the tools and support and guidance and whatever whatever you need to make you able to succeed there. Because otherwise it's a straw house built on sand. Yes! yes. And I'm setting you up, right? The other is, I think, more what you're talking about, which is there's this sort of false fear that if I'm helping you, you know, that if I'm offering advice, that somehow you're not going to like that, or that you're going to be resistant to that instead of grateful for it, or that I'm not, right? And then a sort of third thing, which is a little different, which is that you don't need me, or that I don't have anything to offer. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the that's the sort of other side of the coin, which is that I realized, oh, Maybe I actually have some knowledge or expertise or something to offer that I didn't know I had. I think part of it was I was traveling a huge amount. I was overwhelmed. I was in over my head. And there were just things I had to learn about what I had to offer to you that I didn't know I had to offer, that I wasn't withholding in the sense of like, oh, I have things to offer <laughs> that would be helpful, but I'm not going to tell you because you're going to figure it out for yourself. I just didn't know I had them. Or even the way you offered, because maybe, you know, it's like you hand somebody a juice box and then the next day you give them a straw and you don't make the connection <laughs> for them that the right, straw right. goes with the juice oh, box. I right? thought you just bit into them. Right. That's what, was that a straw metaphor? Did I you miss a straw? straw? No, I stepped on the straw thing. But it was pertinent to the conversation. It was really what she was talking about. It's like here's a tool. Here's tool A. Here's tool B. But I'm not going to tell you that A right. and B are designed to be used really hidden yeah. in there, like some sort Together. of metal implement in a stack of I don't know exactly some sort of loose <laughs> grass. <laughs> Like like dry sear, yeah. Yeah, like something screen. they would use to sew with, yeah. hidden in a giant just lie down on your pile mat. of hay. Yeah, you guys yeah. ever see a friend and you're just like, hey. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> how do you follow that? I don't know. I might be wrapping up. Yeah. What I do think, you think, Alex? I don't know. I hope we've covered uh, a wide spectrum of different experiences. I feel like we've gone from sort of a managing sort of clients and, and relationships conversation into emotions and sort of sharing and, and personality at work into the other side of that, which I think is probably, I don't know, I don't, I feel like it's not something that is sort of discussed a lot. I feel like the manager is sort of left out of that conversation. The talk is more about the, you know, the drones around the water cooler, not so much commiserating with the experience of the, the manager and, and walking that 
boundary, right? Because I think in all those ways that you want to be of service and of use, I think that's a really hard thing to walk, right? I want to maintain with you the same sort of relationship that we want to have in this office in terms of our office culture. And I want to be able to be friendly with you and, and have a relationship where if you fuck something up that you, you feel like you can share it with me, but that I do trust your expertise and that you are an expert. That's so many different roles and tasks to juggle. It's a hard thing to do. And I feel like the biggest thing to have aware for the manager too is like I, I might fuck up managing you, right? That like dare to be, you know, celebrate failure on on both sides, I think. Oh yeah. Too, right? Of Absolutely. Like, of being able to come in on your podcast and say, hey guys, yeah. <laughs> guess what? Whee! My bad. Um, which is like, that's a huge, I think that's a huge thing and it takes courage. And I feel like, I don't know, is, is part of that whole question of like, where do we, what's open and what's closed? What do I share? What don't I share? What's something that everyone at the office knows versus like, what do I just want to share with this one? person well, it's of, like at the beginning of a relationship aren't we really tightly yeah. we're, we're kind of like bales we're tightly bound oh god yes! <laughs> <laughs> and as the relationship matures we yeah. we loosen and sort yeah. of and and, and we rot and get less and, and, <laughs> and turn to mulch apart like crows <laughs> get less stuffy <laughs> it's drawing out the relationship <laughs> oh, in its god. many layers Stop, we have to pay for it. We have to pay for it. No, 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 That is potentially maybe one of many episodes about daring to be human at work. Of course, we want to hear your stories, so please, however you want to get in touch with us, you can leave us a voicemail at 518-212-7886, send us a message or leave a comment on our Facebook page, or send us an email to hello at daretobehumanpodcast.com. And of course, again, thanks to Mike Ganino. We hope you enjoy the episode. We want to hear more from you guys. We want to hear what inspires you. What do you have connections with? What do you reflect on listening to these stories or what felt like maybe it was missing? Share your story and we can fill in the gaps. And share your straw. No. Okay. We're done. You would say it's the last straw. Oh. 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 <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> Don't you do it! Do it. <laughs> you son of a straw man! <laughs> <laughs>